to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. All right, welcome back, everybody, to Hotel Bar Sessions. I'm super excited about today's episode. We are going to be rouging our knees and rolling our stockings down, and we're going to be talking about musical theater, its history, its importance in culture, and why Rick and I, in particular, love it so, so much. (laughs) But before we do that, I am going to get some drink orders and some rants and raves from my co-hosts, and we have a special guest. But, Charles, let me go to you first. What are you drinking, and what are you ranting or raving about this week. I would just have a very nice glass of rye on a rick. I'm going to rick it with one rock. (laughs) A rock. A rock. (laughs) My rave is the pleasures of the good old-fashioned wristwatch. I have grown tired of staring at my phone to find out what time of day or night it is. (laughs) It feels like it sucks me deeper into the techno hell that we are hurtling toward. And I bought a wristwatch, and I love it. It makes me feel like an adult, and it's really cool when I can just pop my coat sleeve, turn my (laughs) wrist at a 45-degree angle, glance, and keep it moving. So I am raving about the good old-fashioned wristwatch. (laughs) Nice, nice. All right, Rick, what about you? And also, after you give us your drink order and rant and rave, make sure you introduce our special guest. So, Noel, I'm going to have a gin gimlet, please. You know how I like it. And this week, I am raving about the DePaul Humanity Center. There's a sadness built into this rave because the director, my friend Peter Steves, has announced his retirement. And so this is his last year. But what I love about the center is that he has decided he's not going to talk about why humanities are important. He's going to show it. And so I think he does a lot of great events. I'm sad to see him go, but I want to rave on his way out as he does his farewell tour. Nice. Before we get to you, Lee, I brought a friend with me to the bar. We are joined by Blake Zolfo, who is, first of all, my nephew. So yes, we are nepotistic on this podcast. (laughs) If my other nieces and nephews want to be on the podcast, you just got to grease some palms and you're welcome. (laughs) So Blake has studied music and musical theater, including dance. He is an incredible dancer. Blake and I talk an awful lot about theater in general and musical theater. And besides being a performer, he's really thoughtful about it. And so we thought it would be fun to have someone who actually knows what the hell they're talking about talk with us about musical theater. That's new for us. (laughs) So, Blake, Noelle's here. She's our bartender, and she wants to know what you're drinking. And then we want to know, are you ranting or raving? Hi, Noelle. Great to meet you. I would love a whiskey ginger. Don't really care what the liquor is. House is fine. (laughs) I like your style, Blake. (laughs) Thank you so much. My rave is, I'll say it, about the Chicago transit system. I know that the grass is always greener, but you guys have (laughs) Wi-Fi, or I should say access to the internet at all times, and I'm going places and I have no idea how to get there, but I'm underground in New York, so there's a rant in there too. (laughs) Glad to be here in Chicago, for sure. Well, welcome. Um, Lee, what about you? What are you drinking and are you ranting or raving? 
So I'm going to have my usual a Fireball and Diet Coke, and I am ranting this week about allergy season. Uh, and let me just say, I don't have allergies. I'm not allergic to anything, but my partner has allergies. It seems like a lot of people do have allergies. First of all, it looks like a miserable predicament to be in just physically. And I think second of all, I can't imagine how much it must suck now to go through allergy season with allergies and you're like, are these allergies? Is it the flu? Mm. Do I have COVID? So yeah, thoughts and prayers out to all of you with allergies. <laughs> all right. So Rick Lee is in the hot seat today and there's a million things he hasn't done, but just you wait because <laughs> he is going to be talking about musical theater today. So Rick, give us an intro. The three of us regular co-hosts of this podcast often talk about musical theater and how much we enjoy it, things that we think are important in musical theater. I know Lee is a big fan of the Pirates of Penzance. And I was thinking about back to our style episode and then also our music episode. There comes a moment in which I think it's healthy to take stock of your aesthetic choices and to figure out is this a good thing that I'm enjoying or not a good thing? And why am I enjoying it? And so we thought this would be a good opportunity to look at musical theater and figure out why do we like it? Okay, Rick, let's start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. <laughs> You guys, I'm going to do this all episode. Just be ready. <laughs> so why don't you give us a little bit of history of the musical theater? How did we get here? This is an interesting point because for many philosophers, drama is one of the highest forms of art. This goes back to Aristotle. It includes Hegel. And that's often because it's thought to be a really advanced form of poetry and mm -hmm. also that it dramatizes human action. And so in watching drama, in participating in drama as an audience member, we're learning something about our ethical, political situation. Then if you look at the development of theater, one might include opera in that, in which then from a certain period on in operas, the entire thing was music. There was music all the way through. And then every once in a while, that would be punctuated by arias, like songs, but it was musical all the way through. But musical theater is interesting in that it's not music all the way through, that it is a drama. By the way, I include comedy in that, so drama includes comedy and tragedy. So it is a drama, and it's punctuated by music. And I think artistically, this raises an awful lot of questions, like what is the music doing? Why is there music? And so on. And also, I think especially in the U.S., there's a link between musical theater and the experience of lower class people, particularly immigrants, so that musical theater was a kind of entertainment for those who couldn't appreciate Wagner or Mozart. And so then they would go and they would actually see good theater performed that was actually entertaining. 
<laughs> so I'm also interested in this link between sort of high-low art and high-low culture. I think musical theater plays in really interesting ways in that arena as well. I have a question, and it's a clarifying question, and I apologize for apologizing up front with this question. But when we talk about musical theater and as the conversation evolves, will this include movie musical? I don't see why not. I do. <laughs> oh, interesting. All right, Blake. <laughs> we're saying movie musicals that were musicals first and then were translated onto film or as something that originated as a oh, movie we can, musical? We can talk about movie musicals that start on stage. Oh, okay. Then, oh, okay. I th- then I think that's that's good. Yeah. Well, because it, it seems to me that's an interesting question. A, because unfortunately, some of my favorite musicals are originally created for the film and didn't start on stage. But secondly, if we're going to talk about Gesamtdivik, excuse my pronunciation, we're also talking about including the medium of film as a part of this collection of or combining of or unity of various artistic expressions. For clarification, I suppose, musical theater came from the vaudeville mm-hmm. world, so that lines up with your idea that it came from the lower class or it was more accessible to everyday people. The stories came about because they were trying to link together a bunch of vaudeville specialties. And so it is this halfway child between vaudeville and opera, traditional opera. But if we follow out that link to vaudeville, then it seems to me that if film is a medium that is more universally accessible than theater is in terms of prices, in terms of its ubiquity and so on, then we might be legitimately following out the origin and home of musical theater to take seriously those musicals that were originarily or even only on film as part of this common person's experience. Because for me, the question becomes, does the musical created for film do everything that the stage musical does? Yes, in the vocabulary of a movie. You can still express similar things, but you're going to do it as a jump cut in a movie as opposed to a scene transition in a musical. So the vocabulary is more or less the same. It's sort of just the expression in that moment. So Blake, imagine there's someone in our audience who might be your uncle who doesn't know what a jump cut is. Could you just explain that a little bit? (laughs) Sure. If you remember the movie Moulin Rouge, and this is probably a good example, because now it's a musical based off of the movie, sort of the reverse of what we're talking about. What I thought was so iconic about the movie was these manic jump cuts where one second you're in one frame looking at one set of characters and literally the next second you're looking at a completely different frame. As opposed to now they translated it for the stage and people have been commenting that it doesn't quite translate the same way because what was so exciting and frenetic about that energy was quick transitions. And now on stage, you're like, and now someone enters and then we bring the lights slowly up on them. Yeah, I think the same thing happens the opposite way as well, though, is that there are musical theater pieces in the theater that I can think of that have that same kind of, as you say, frenetic energy, but it's just from the number of bodies moving 
moving at once on stage or the set pieces moving. I'm thinking of, just to pick recent examples, Wicked and Hamilton that are not the same when you see them compressed in two dimensions on a screen. Yeah, so now I see that in order to capture that jump cut, you have to drag entirely new scenery onto the stage. And if you do that with curtain up, the audience is going to see that. And that is not the same kind of energy as now I'm here, now I'm there. There could be energy watching crew run on and off stage with big pieces of scenery, but it's a different kind of energy. And the audience then has a different experience of that. Yeah. And I think the audience can register it because the baseline of vocabulary when you settle into a musical is different. So you can still, I think, get that same effect from an audience but you have to have the right team translating it, and it, that doesn't always... At the risk of throwing any professionals under the bus, I'll just allude to the fact that it happens, <laughs> not any particular examples. Well, one kind of energy that you can definitely not get on film is the energy of a live performance, and one important part of that is the underlying tension that something might go wrong. Mm. I think that when we go and see a film, nobody's going to miss a line, nobody's going to miss a step, you know, nobody's going to break down an actual emotion that is contrary to the way that it has already been scripted. And I think that the fact that that can happen, of course, doesn't always happen in theater, is part of the experience of theater. Yeah, you get one take and they're watching it in real time. The lyrics have to be heard the first time you hear them. You can't go yeah. back mm, like yeah. it's a poem. Mm. And if I could, I do think that there's something about that that suits musical theater in the theater better. Because at least part of the structure of musical theater, which is, of course, what a lot of people hate about it, is that a normal drama is going on and then someone breaks out into a song and dance, right? Which seems very weird. But of course, in musical theater, that happens because the character is so overwhelmed with some kind of emotion or reacting to a situation that requires song and dance in order to properly respond to it. I don't think that that is communicated as well, not in a live performance. And if I could take up one side of that, Lee, namely the dance side, as you were saying that, I started thinking that when I see dance on film, and I can point to Fred Astaire, who starts dancing up the wall and yeah, then on the scene. ceiling and, mm -hmm. and so on, when I see it on a film, from our perspective today, that isn't experienced all that differently from the way we experience CGI that there's something mm -hmm. about the medium of film that we're like, oh, of course, somehow you could work it out that he's dancing on the wall and now the ceiling. Never mind that back when he was doing it on film, they actually were spinning a cube around right. while That's he's right. dancing. That's right. But I think th that gives the dancing in musical theater an energy that is never going to be the same as it is on film. Yeah, it's a kind of danger implicit there. Because exactly as Blake says, it's one take. I'm thinking about for example, my favorite musical, Pirates of Penzance, the modern major general mm. song. I mean, there's a danger in performing that <laughs> right. song. It's a hard song to sing, right? And there's so much going on even in that scene. There's so much other movement and dancing going on. That's what makes it exciting. I will say this, though, in defense of movie musicals, though, of course, we know it's rehearsed ad infinitum and can be edited 
there is something to be said about the, the spectacularity, if you will, that's possible in a scene mm-hmm. shot in the film. So I think about my favorite movie musical, Singing in the Rain, and I think about mm-hmm. the set piece, Make Him Laugh. And you think mm-hmm. about all yeah. the things mm-hmm. that Donald O'Connor does, all the slapstick, all the physical humor. He's breaking through screens. He's coming off of ladders. You could not capture that on stage in the same way, with the same level of visceral possibility. Like all these things are happening because they're so well staged. And I'm not even sure, I assume there's editing. Right. I don't think that's a single take. But all the props that are being employed, that's not going to happen on stage as far as I know. I think another good example of that is the way that film allows us to get right up yeah. in the faces yeah. of the actors, which, of course, you can never do that's what I was gonna say. in the theater. For example, in the film version of The Wiz, we can get right up in her face right. as she sings Home, which is the absolutely gut-wrenching, heartbreaking song where you really do need to be really up close to someone and feel that intimacy. And the first time I saw The Wiz on stage, I thought... Why do I not feel as moved by this as I did when Mm. I saw it on film? Yeah, the intimacy that Mm. film allows that you, for the most part, won't get on theater is something really powerful. The Les Mis movie comes to mind with those like painfully yeah. close close-ups. Yeah, too bad they couldn't see. <laughs> <laughs> Something was missing. I knew it. I couldn't put my finger on it. What was it? Oh, a pitch. That's what was missing. <laughs> <laughs> my God. But God bless them for, for doing that, though. That's really brave on their part. But here's something that I always appreciate but also have been critical of about musical theater is that the music allows for bad acting to be hidden. A bad actor, if they're a decent singer, can get away with it. Oh, look at Blake's face. <laughs> you just threw down there, Charles. Uh, you just threw down. I would argue that the phrase is broader acting as opposed okay. to better or worse because I think part of the, maybe not charm, but one of the strengths of stage theater as opposed to filmed theater is that you can get away with a vocabulary that's broader, which I would argue allows the audience Mm -hmm. to feel more fanciful feelings or broader feelings. And that's one of the strengths of musical theater. So I agree with you that maybe the, the specificity is lost in some ways. But the strength is all these things we're talking about that we're finally allowing these bigger mm-hmm. things to happen because we suspend our disbelief. No, that's a great point. Every now and then I can tell when a stage actor is transitioning to the screen, television, or film because it's just like, wow, that's really big. What you're doing now, that's sure. not a television or a screen motion. That point, I think, has been really nicely made in two books that have come out recently. One is a book that was originally supposed to be about Buster Keaton, but is actually about the origin of movies and the history of the the early 20th century and so on, using Buster Keaton as a kind of trope. And the other one is a new book. I can't think of either the title or the author, but I'll put it in the show notes about the method, the history of it, and so on. And both of those books make this point that the camera can be, as Lee said earlier, so right in your face Also that you're mic'd, I mean, even in the early days of talkies, you were mic'd pretty closely so that you can't project like you have to when you're on a stage in a theater that you might be 700 feet away from an audience member. And so I think that kind of broad acting also emerges out of another point Lee made earlier, namely that 
when I'm in the second balcony, I can't see your subtle facial expressions. And so somehow that has to be communicated to me in another way. But what I like about Blake's point is that there's something about the broadness of that that extends out and can encompass all of us in a way that the quiet and less broad acting of film cannot. Yeah, I think it also makes it more accessible to the masses because music is something that affects us subconsciously. So we're taking these things that are easily accessible and using that as a giant springboard to get everyone up to these emotionally heightened places that not to say that you can't do that in a movie theater because you have the big IMAX screen. There's a different way you do that. But for live performance, like buying into the idea that someone sings in order to express themselves opens up infinite possibilities of the kinds of emotions we can all experience together in the audience. I think there's one relatively recent development in musical theater, though, that has made it possible for musical theater to be less broad, but at the same time still as affecting as Blake just described, and that's miked actors. Now you watch Hamilton and you can hear a piece like Dear Theodosia, which is extremely quiet and still have that same projection (laughs) without it having to be an Oklahoma type song. So because we can mic the actors and we can that way get up in their face in the same kind of a way that a film would do without actually being in their face. And then that contrast is heightened even more. If the rest of the songs are so big and broad, then we finally bring it down to this quiet yeah, moment. And yeah. it's so effective, yeah. especially the one you just talked. Yeah, I love But that on the other hand, Blake, let me ask you a more technical question. There must have been training to be able to sing quietly loudly. You're going to laugh, but in college, we had a exercise where we sang to our fingernails. <laughs> Rick does that all the time. <laughs> It was in that moment that I thought to myself, am I paying too much for tuition? (laughs) But literally, the idea is you want to have as much core in the sound, as much solid sound, even though you're just talking to your fingernails. Uh And the teacher would just keep being in your ear saying, less effort, less effort. And then every day for a week, you had to feel the wind rush. (laughs) In all seriousness, that is what theater school is all about. You pay a giant price tag to feel the wind rush. Hey, listeners, before we have too many drinks and it slips my mind, if you can't catch us at the hotel bar, you can catch us on Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. You can also follow our HBS hosts individually on Twitter to catch their off-air thoughts. You can follow Charles at at C underscore F Peterson. And Peterson is with an O, not an E. O, not an E. Rick is at at Rick Lee Philos. That's Rick Lee with two E's and Philos spelled like half of the word philosophy. And Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson. The doctor's abbreviated, and Lee spelled L-E-I-G-H. Now, back to our conversation. One of the things that obviously separates musical theater, both theater in the theater and theater in film, is the music. (laughs) (laughs) And music makes possible things that are not in other kinds of dramas, namely song and dance. Why is that important? 
So I've been thinking a lot about this. I think one of the reasons people who don't like musical theater don't is because people break into song at at various (laughs) points. And that rarely happens in daily life. I mean, unless Lee is in your daily life. That's absolutely true. I was just about to say. It rarely happens. Sadly, but it rarely happens. And that someone breaks into song to further the drama, either plot-wise, emotion-wise, character-wise. And I'm wondering what you think, Blake, about how, let's say, particularly song does that in musical theater. Officially, from a dramaturgical standpoint, we would ideally have the song either illuminate character, develop the plot, or establish time and place. Mm. That being said, we also just love hearing good songs (laughs) that we can bop out to in the audience. You can have a song that does absolutely nothing but just feels fun. Shapoopy from Music Man. We just want a bunch of people to dance in front of us. Or ease on down the room. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So I would say those are the four official categories. That last one just being, it's just plain fun. But shows have had varying degrees of success with all levels of craftsmanship. Like, Mamma Mia was a fluff piece that ran for 14 years on Broadway. And some would argue a lot of those songs were, quote, just for fun. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Not to mention Cats. Yeah. The snob in me, the musical theater snob in me, wishes all songs illuminated character, develop the plot, or establish time and place. But we just love in an audience feeling like we are having a good time and watching people up on stage have a good time. So that fills in the gaps between all of the content. Okay, Blake, I want to try this theory out on you because I sometimes think that singing something instead of saying something in musical theater is like a second form of punctuation. So we have ways vocally to punctuate our speech, right? To indicate that something's a question to indicate that something is an exclamation, et cetera, et cetera. But music brings in a whole nother level of punctuation to a point. I can say something that is maybe not sad, but is going to be sad. And the music can indicate before it gets sad that it's going to be sad. for sure. Or something like that. Yeah, I think specifically something I was thinking about as you were saying that is as a song gets higher... In theory, it gets more important if it's written Mm -hmm. well. So in regular everyday language, we have intonation that tells us how someone feels. And so in musical theater, all it's doing is taking that exact same idea and attaching it to actual pitches to indicate that in general, if someone's singing higher, what they're saying is a little bit more important than the things they said at a lower pitch. I have often thought that I wish in the middle of my lectures, I could have a key change for just that reason. <laughs> and how thrilling that right. lecture becomes in that oh, moment. People would weep. They would like, weep like, this note yeah. I'm going to hit the well, next and- octave on this one. <laughs> yeah. You think that was good. <laughs> I mean, while I'm saying that, I also wish I had shoebop girls behind me during my lectures. Wait, you but don't? Whatever. Not anymore. The budget was too high. (laughs) Music for sure can indicate the nuance of the emotion underneath. There's also something exciting for a song that the lyrics are sad, but maybe the music underneath is super happy. Mm. Cabaret comes to mind. A lot of juxtaposition between the lyrics that an alien would take at face value, but we understand that underneath 
why is she happy mm-hmm. singing these songs? Like, she shouldn't necessarily be happy. In an ideal world, it's sort of communicating the subconscious feelings of the character, but that's not even a hard and fast rule. And Lee and I have often spoken about the way in which what breaking into song allows the character to do is indicate that the emotion that the drama has brought them to is too excessive to be captured in spoken words. Whether that's happiness, grief, heartbreak, when the drama brings the character to a moment where it's just too much, then I have to sing! Yeah. Can I ask a genuine yeah. question of y'all? Do y'all, when you're really happy, not sing? I'm being 100% so genuine. Do. People say like no one in real life sings when they're happy, but right. we do. We just sing songs that someone else has written because we can't compose them ourselves. But you know, Blake, I think that this is something that is a characteristic of A, people who sing, and B, people who love musical theater. I think that there are a lot of people who don't see singing as a better way of expressing themselves than speaking. Are we saying there's a demographic of people that believe that musical theater songs come out of nowhere and are unrealistic and also like listen to Adele and sing along and cry in the rooms? We think that there's an overlap between those two. So I think that both of those are a demographic and there might be an overlap between those two. But what I was talking about are people who can't sing or don't sing and whose relationship to music with lyrics is not to think that that's a better way to express emotion than just speaking. I agree with the the point about what singing within the context of the musical does for the character. I think of it as a type of soliloquy, if you will, that gives amazing access to the interior world of the character. But Going back to the earlier point of musicals just for the music, I'm very curious to think about this phenomenon where you have musicals, and I use quote marks, that highlight musical performers. I'm thinking of Jersey Boys. I'm thinking about the musical based on Carol King's oeuvre, like Beautiful. Mm. I'm thinking about the Motown. So now, if you're talking about musicals where the music serves just to make people feel good, it's a review Really? But it's called a musical. And I'm wondering if that's still a musical in a sense. For sure. And especially Beautiful and Jersey Boys, I would say, are two of the better examples of jukebox musicals that do this. Because though they are recycling the songs of these performers, the songs very much are talking about the character's internal state at that moment. Because most of the songs arose like that naturally. Not to say there aren't jukebox musicals where it is just like an album and you're just hanging out right. for two and a half hours. Like American Idiot. Yeah, yeah. Margaritaville comes, comes or to Or Mamma Mia. Yeah, <laughs> Mamma Mia, exactly. Yeah, there's less pressure to have it come from the characters. I, I would like to think the audience on some level is subconsciously aware that it's just fluff as opposed to it does do these things that we're hoping it does for the characters. I find nothing wrong with going to the theater with the intention that I just want to be entertained for an hour and a half and I just want to have fun and I don't want characters, I don't want plot, I don't want drama, I just want to have people singing fun songs that I remember and I know the words to. (laughs) I don't believe you, Rick. Even if the songs are just fun and even if it's not a particularly educational piece of theater, I do think that you expect that ideas will be expressed, characters will be developed, something about it will be memorable. And I actually do think that you probably expect that you'll learn something from it. I take Rick at his word that he would go to a kid's bop 
musical. I take him completely at his word that he would go there just for the entertainment of it, just for the shits and giggles. <laughs> Wait, Lee, did we open the burn unit again? <laughs> no, I, I'm not, this is not a burn. Like, I, I, I mean, I just disagree with Charles. I think if you went to a show like that, you would say it sucked. I guess what I was saying is, and Blake used this word before, and I think now it's time that we redeploy it. That if it's announced that this is a review of Broadway from the 30s through the 50s, and I'm just going to hear some of the biggest numbers from Broadway musicals in that period, I don't have any problem with that. But that wouldn't be a musical theater. Exactly. Then it's more like a concert. Yeah, it's a review. Yeah. But I think if you were going to a musical theater piece... And the songs were nothing but entertaining songs. I think that you would say that show sucked. I mean, I'm a fan of the jazz vocalist Kurt Elling. By the way, alive today, Charles, and therefore recorded after 1972. (laughs) And because of pandemic, he started doing concerts online. And what he decided to do was actually tell a story that was written independently of the songs and then take a lot of jazz standards and then some new compositions and actually do a one-man musical online. And I thought, first, that was a really brilliant way for a jazz vocalist to use the medium that is probably better than if he just sat on a stool in front of a camera and started singing, the summer wind comes blowing in. (laughs) But secondly, I really did appreciate the way in which the music, both to use one of Lee's terms, punctuated the drama, but also intensified the drama. seems like we're starting to open up two conversations. One, what qualifies a musical as a musical? And two, what do we as audience members respond oh, to? Oh, snap. So it's the non-philosopher who asks the philosophical <laughs> question, what is it? Blake, you are welcome back anytime. Anybody right. who asks you, you beat you to it, Lee. He beat you to it. He totally did. I think, Rick, you had a a nice foundational definition of this combination of music and narrative, speech act, a non-musical speech act, and I guess also dancing, right? So we're still talking about this one particular form that combines various artistic modes of expression. So I think we can start there, though I'm sure there are always exceptions to that rule. And I think what you're pointing to, Charles, is that, as I think Lee said in the last segment, in musical theater, we want there to be drama. That is, we want there to be a plot. We want there to be something going on that is not just the music. In other words, it's not just a concert. And so what makes it not a concert is that there is drama going on. Yeah. So I think that it's both music and theater But the music is part of the theater, part of the drama, and not, for example, a soundtrack or a score. Well, I assume that when you said just theater, that included necessarily dance as a component of it. But yeah, I guess we should be very specific about dance making something a musical as opposed to just a concert. Well, it's interesting, Charles, because you raised the concept of a speech act, and I'm no expert in speech act theory, but I'm wondering if there isn't an interesting way in which it can contribute to this conversation in that speech act theory says that what we do when we're speaking, what we do when we're using language, 
is not just communicating content from one head to another head, that a lot of things go on. So when I say, oh, Lord, I'm not communicating content there, but I'm doing something, language has this performative aspect as well as the content aspect, and that performance communicates something, and maybe then in musical theater, the songs and dance also communicate something in their performance that brings the drama along, intensifies the drama, or as Blake indicated, what was it? Moves plot, established character, or established time and place. Yeah, I think a lot of times the song and dance gives us a window into the inner life of the character. So serves that second function that Blake just mentioned, which we can't see in a regular drama. I can only hear what the character is saying. I can't then have the rest of the drama stop while I look into the character's inner life, right? But you can get that in musical theater. And that's one thing we really haven't focused on, which is the choreography that goes along with musical theater and how the choreography gives us such an insight into characters. I think about West Side Story and the moves that the two gangs, the Jets and the Sharks have that are very specific to them, certainly culturally specific, that the choreography shows you. And it tells you something about this subworld that these two groups live in. Blake, if I'm not mistaken, you've done some choreography, right? I have. I've done a choreography or two. (laughs) (laughs) I've dabbled in choreography. (laughs) They call it a graph, Rick. Look at you. What kinds of things do you think about when you're choreographing a dance that is part of a drama? I would say most choreographers, myself included, start from the story every single time. Like, we'll have a choreographer or I will step to the front of the room and say, okay, so the moment that's happening here is ABC, so that we all wrap our brains around the main story, because sometimes every single move in dance doesn't need to communicate this specific story. It can just be like, and now we're joyful. So we're just going (laughs) to communicate a bunch of joyful. But I would say even in audition situations, like the Hamilton audition, they'll say things like, okay, you're representing Burr's inner thoughts right now. So keep that in the back of your mind as we're moving our arms here and moving our hands. So there's a macro that in contemporary musical theater is 100% serving the story. And then you get into the micro, which may be a little bit more improv-based or just maybe speaks more specifically moment-to-moment to to the emotional states. I got to be honest that at a certain point, the image that popped in my head was Robin Williams (laughs) (laughs) doing that bit about Twilight. But inside. I think in good, and I would even say in most Contemporary musical theater on Broadway right now, I would imagine they are starting with the through line of the characters and then breaking it down to beat by beat, eight count. Just back to the Hamilton example, I mean, one of the interesting things about the choreography in Hamilton is that it actually does communicate so many really important plot points, even in that very first opening scene where the story of Hamilton's early life is being told. You see them communicate in song that a cousin died, I think, hung himself. But you see a a dancer in the back step up onto a stool and pantomime hanging himself. And that's often really interesting how the dancers are also telling parts of the story, establishing character, establishing time and place, doing all the things that we traditionally think of speech and music, song doing, but the dance often can do that as well. Well, and what I'm realizing as we're having this conversation is dance opens up a little bit more ambiguity in a 
good mm-hmm. way so that it, the individual audience members can interpret that moment separately. Because, like, I right. mean, if you say I love you to another person, there's only certain ways you can interpret that. But if a person's reaching, like, what does a reach mean? Mm. What does having your arms out mean? Each person can then say, oh, I take that to mean this yeah. in my yeah. life. It seems like we've gotten a little bit off of Blake's two right. questions. <laughs> one was, what right. qualifies a musical as a musical? Which I think we more or less established. But the second one was, what makes a musical so enjoyable? I'm assuming as opposed to musicals that aren't so enjoyable. I'm actually right now having a hard time thinking of a musical that I don't like. Does anybody here have an example of a musical that you think is a bad musical? Well, what's interesting about your question, Lee, is that I think we have an example of a musical that dramatizes your question exactly, namely The Producers, in which they set out to write a musical that no one would enjoy, and that turns out to be enjoyable. But there's also the Spider-Man musical, if I recall, just had horrible horrible reviews and all kinds of production problems and delays. And yeah, so that may be accepted as a bad musical. Yes, and people went to go see the Spider-Man musical because they heard it was so terrible and they thought people might get hurt and they would be there live and in person when that happens. I think what we've established is that live musical theater, it's impossible for it not to be enjoyable. Even if it's bad, it's going to be enjoyable. I have attended a performance or two under five performances at the most, where I either left at intermission or I would like to have left at intermission. And I won't, because I'm still a practicing professional in the industry, we can talk about that offline. But the point is, I got an hour into the show and either the crafting of it was so haphazard or they pushed out a musical, like, here's some songs, eat it up. And I thought to myself, I would rather be sleeping And so I went home. I think that's as close as I've ever come to a bad musical. And the reason I thought it was bad was because there was no packaging. Like, there's a certain level of intention that needs to come from this. I want to feel like you gave some thought into the experience you wanted me to have. And if I don't feel like there's a structure or an arc that you have planned for me, I'm going to go home and I'm going to sleep. So, Blake, in that, you are not pointing to a good musical badly performed. You're pointing to this as a work of art is a hot mess. (laughs) Yeah, I guess you can have the greatest idea in the world. And if you present it in a way that tells me that you're just going to hope I have a good experience instead of guiding me through that musically or guiding me through, that's when I start to check out. I know recently there's an mm. Emmett Till opera and people are off the bat are like, are you kidding? So, you know, this is already setting up like this is a bad idea to create in this form this particular story. So I think that's also a question, not badly performed, but are there certain things that you're like, really, you shouldn't even be doing this? I thought going into the Michael Jackson musical, I thought it was a yikesy idea and I hate to admit it. They really sold me on his music and his popularity, and I came out of it thinking we should give him a second chance. (laughs) Okay. Okay. (laughs) The only two musicals that I've ever seen live that I did not enjoy were Mamma Mia. And by the way, I'm a huge ABBA fan, but I thought it was a stupid musical, and I don't even think it was a musical. I think it was a review. And the second one was Dirty Mm. Dancing, and that was entirely because of the performance. If you went in knowing that you loved the music, what was it that fell short for you as far as the execution? The theater. 
it was a stupid story. It was stupidly acted. It was stupidly pieced together. I would have rather just say this is a ABBA review and not get character right. involvement and just say here's a bunch of songs you all love yeah. one right after the other maybe even in the same order but just yeah, cut out totally. the scenes. yeah I mean that's how I feel about <laughs> Mamma Mia both the, the stage production and the film it's just the dumbest thing I've ever seen right let's just get four Swedes on stage and have right? them perform ABBA <laughs> yes. songs yes. much better yes. than Mamma Mia <laughs> I will buy tickets to that there is something about Mamma Mia where I'm like this plot is so stupid that I actually start enjoying the stupidity of this plot. That's my fiance's reason why he loves Mamma Mia. He'll watch it like yeah. twice a year for that reason. He's like, I can turn my brain so far off. That, that is, by the I way, mean, the same thing like, with my partner. And it's like every time I see it on the television, I'm like, Lordy Bagordy, woman, stop it. You're ruining ABBA. Yeah. Hit me in the face with ABBA songs for an hour and a half. I suppose two hours. that's a long way around to saying what I said before, which is that it's actually is hard for me to imagine a bad musical. I mean, if I could imagine a musical that was bad, it was either bad theater or it was bad And I just want to point out that in your point, Lee, about enjoyment, that doesn't mean necessarily that it makes me happy, right? And so totally. to go back to older notions of drama, that there is some enjoyment in seeing even grief expressed in such a profound and penetrating way that, okay, maybe enjoyment isn't exactly the right word, but it, it does it's something. Right. It, it's cathartic yeah. and it does something important for me. Exactly. Well, and something I discovered recently to that point is I was listening to Olivia Rodrigo's new album. I don't know if anyone's heard yeah. it, but it's pretty great. Yeah. And she was singing a ballad. And as she's holding out a note, I was realizing what we want as humans, or maybe I'll just speak for myself, I, though I do think it applies to the greater human experience. We want to express our grief and have someone else express our grief with us. And when you have a song, it slows down the amount of time we have to process that grief. So maybe our feelings feel bigger than a three-minute song. Mm. So we can draw that feeling out and allow us to feel more of it just because we're singing it as opposed to saying it is something I discovered recently. I completely agree with that. And I think one of the other things that I really love about musical theater is that you can take that home with you and that you will take that home with you, that you'll be singing yeah. those songs later in the day after the theater is closed. Whereas when you go and see a non-musical dramatic piece, you're not going to come home and recite the script to yourself <laughs> over and over and over. No, you guys don't do that? <laughs> orations of the Look, play at home. I've, I've got all of Willie Loman's lines from Death of a Salesman in my head. And when I feel low, I recite those lines. But that's because you like the soliloquy, Charles, and so you like to have your interior monologue exposed in front of you to look at and contemplate. So I wonder if the, the reason why we can't come up with bad musicals is because they just fail and they sink beneath the waves of popular consciousness. And the ones that we recall are just the really good ones that last and are performed for 14, 15, 16 years on Broadway. Like, there's not going to be a national touring company of Spider-Man. <laughs> there's just oh, not okay, going to be. Okay, let me go on record as saying one musical that I hate hate, hate. I hated it when I saw it, and I was enticed to the film version of it and hated it, is Cats. Mm. I hate Cats. And I hate it because it's stupid. 
It, it's really <laughs> stupid. There, There is no plot. <laughs> you don't know who these cats are. You don't know why. You, you don't know. You don't care. <laughs> you don't care. <laughs> and some of the songs are enjoyable. Some of them I find a little mawkish. But yeah, so Cats is a musical I did not enjoy. I would argue, though, as someone knowing that you like Chorus Line, it's the same plot as a Chorus Line. We have a bunch of unknowns that we get to know over the course of the musical. The favorite gets picked at the end, and then we are supposed to just go on the arc of this favorite or the favorites. Okay, but here's one main difference. I know what the good one gets at the end, namely a part. I still don't know what the fuck the cat gets. <laughs> What's in, in it for the cats? What's in it for the cats? A musical. A musical that runs for 40 years. <laughs> yeah, truly. That's actually a really good example, Rick. I had forgotten about cats. And yeah, that is a musical that I also don't enjoy. But again, I don't think that I would say it's a bad musical. Would you say, Rick, like, because they don't bring you up to that level? Not to say that you can't get up to this level, because I maybe. Sweeney or other shows have a sort of level of unbelievability that we can get up to because it's executed well. But do you think maybe Cats just doesn't do a good job of like really bringing you up to that level in order to live in that world? So I think Sweeney Todd is a really good counterexample here because, as you say, there's a way in which they are both so fantastical that it's not supposed to be set in any world that could possibly be a real world. I get that. Right. But, you know, even if you think the way in which even the music of Sweeney Todd and the drama of Sweeney Todd leads us up to that point, yeah. it is, in a way, internally believable, whereas Cats yeah. isn't even internally believable. The opening number of Cats is like, you either believe we're cats or you're going to, you're in for a long two and a half hours. And I should have walked out then. (laughs) Yeah. With Sweeney, I feel like you want to believe this is possible, especially with the larger narrative. There's something so heartbreaking and tragic that you want this to have been possible. They really establish the emotional core of it and then get you into the heightened drama as opposed to Cats sort of starts in that super heightened place. Yeah. Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email a audio clip, keep it under two minutes please, to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. It seems we've done a pretty good job of talking about musicals that we don't like. I I guess it's fair to start talking about the ones that we do like. And I certainly have some stories of my own about what connects me to the musicals that I enjoy so much. So, Lee, do you want to start with that? 
Well, I think everyone here knows that I love the Pirates of Penzance. (laughs) (laughs) I think I love it for reasons that have to do with me loving musical theater, but I think even more so I love it for reasons having to do with me being a philosopher. Pirates of Penzance is this really great Gilbert and Sullivan musical. It has the same amount of lyrical dexterity as Hamilton. I feel like if you're a Hamilton fan, you will also like the Pirates of Penzance. Great catchy numbers, great story that has a lot of interesting twists. But the primary drama in it is between this young pirate who had been promised to be a pirate until his 21st birthday, but it turns out he was born on leap year. And so he's only five when he thinks that he should be free from being a pirate. And he's torn between his duty to honor this pledge to be a pirate until it's 21st year and the love that he has for the law, the queen, and a beautiful young maiden. So it is a perfect send-up of Kantian deontology and probably the most hilarious and clever way of anything that you will find outside of Les Miserables. Rick, this question is very hard for me because I realize that I love a lot of musicals that I know are intensely problematic. For example, The King and I. So Mm. there's something compelling about the story. The numbers are great. Shall We Dance, I think, is a song that you cannot help but dance to while you're hearing it. And it's how I learned how to waltz. But I I mean, (laughs) the the racial presentation in King and I is incredibly problematic unless you now take it as the British Museum in the way Charles keeps pointing out. I can go to the British Museum to understand a whole lot about British colonialism. And so if I take it as a marker of British colonialism, then maybe it's watchable. Similar things about South Pacific, I think you have to be carefully taught is even given the problematic nature of South Pacific, is an incredible song that has a lot to teach. That being said, I think these days my favorite musical is Company. Okay. Mm. I love the story of it. I love the characters in it. And it has, I think, some of the funnest and most interesting songs. I like Sorry Grateful, Ladies Who Lunch. I mean, come on. So, Blake? (laughs) Yeah, I probably have two... Right now, it's a tie between Come From Away. I've seen it four times on Broadway, and I plan on seeing it at least once a year until I die or it closes. It's an hour and a half straight through, and I think (laughs) more shows could benefit from that old hour and a half straight through model. Totally. And there's not really a conflict after the big conflict of 9-11, but the story itself is just about people learning to help each other. And I just, oh, it warms my little cold, icy heart. (laughs) And then The Prom. My fiance's in The Prom right now, and it's just a quintessential musical comedy setup, punchlines, and the comedy arises from socially relevant things. So I always appreciate that little bit of lesson strung among all of the jokes. And I yeah. get to go see him tomorrow night. Nice. Plug. <laughs> Charles, what about you? This is not an easy question for me because I'm not a huge musical theater fan. Probably Jesus Christ Superstar is is one of my favorites. Yes. Because I remember seeing Mm. it, well, the film version of it in later theater. But I loved it because it was the first time I'd seen a musical that had a rock score. 
And that was new compared to the older mm-hmm. Hollywood type of arrangement. And I love the scenes where Jesus was more human, where you see Jesus' anger and frustration with the disciples. And that was a very different portrayal of Jesus from what I was learning in, in church. The only drawback is, and this is the nationalist, I mean, this is my father's voice coming through. My father's like, why does Judas have to be a black man? <laughs> I'm just like stuck in my head. <laughs> they should all be black. Thank you. Right. And Sunday in the Park with George. The Sondheim musical, I absolutely love it. And I think I love it because when I first saw it, it was the Mandy Patinkin and Bernadette Peters production. I love Bernadette Peters. I think she's absolutely amazing. I think she's incredibly underrated as a comedic actress and as a singer. And Mandy Patinkin may be my all-time favorite musical theater performer. I think he's a hell of an actor, an amazing voice. (laughs) And I love it because I love the actual picture. Whenever I go to Chicago and I go to the Chicago Art Institute, I make my way to the Impressionist Hall and I always take a look at that and I always just hear the songs from that musical running through my head. So the musical combines my favorite musical theater performers, some of the greatest songs. The Art of Making Art is an amazing song to me, but it also combines with my Mm, actual favorite Mm. physical canvas-based pieces of art. So... Yeah, Sunday in the Park with George would have to be my favorite musical. You know, I wonder if one of the reasons that more people don't love musical theater is because more people don't see musical theater. I mean, we had started out talking in this episode about how musical theater comes from an attempt to bring theater to the lower classes. But of course, now it's extremely expensive to go to the actual theater. And many of these big Broadway productions either don't go to small towns where people can see them or if they do, people can't afford them. And if you can't afford them in your town, you certainly can't afford to fly to New York and see them on Broadway. So that brings me to a point, but I actually need to ask Blake first. What do you call live recordings of live theater productions. So for example, what they did with Come From Away, which was on HBO, or they did with Hamilton, which was on Disney. What do you call that? I would call that theater on film because they kind of punch in certain moments that you wouldn't necessarily get from just watching a proscenium stage. You get these moments where like the camera's behind the actors, or you get to see some of those close up in the eyes moments. So it's this halfway point between these two official mediums, media, we call those. And I guess what's interesting is it's not really an official industry yet. It's operating currently under the guise of film because of the way that it's recorded. But I think as it keeps developing, it'll be a third form of media. I wish that there were more of those. I agree. I think it's so exciting and it capitalizes on what both do individually. Yeah, and I think that exactly as you said, it's its own medium that it's very different from seeing a musical on stage or seeing a musical in a film. Seeing an onstage musical on film is a very different experience. Some of my earliest encounters with Broadway musicals was, I think, Showtime in the 80s mm. would just set up a camera and this shoot live performances. So that's how I saw Sweeney Todd. That's mm. how I first saw Sunday in the Park with George. So it didn't have the same kinetic in-person energy, but all these other features and elements of it were captured. And I think from the producer's perspective, it's a new revenue stream. But I also wonder if, at least historically, some of the limits of people's access would be the content of the musicals themselves. There's not a huge history in terms of Broadway musicals of content or characters or storylines that reflect my experience or reflect me and my community. So The Wiz was probably 
the first musical that I saw. I was like, oh, this is a black musical. This is an African-American musical. Right. And then Dreamgirls follows. Of course, Hamilton is noted for its multiracial cast and Lin-Manuel Miranda and his work. But that's just a fairly recent phenomenon. I would say that you don't have a bunch of black people in the theater outside of the cost and accessibility. Yeah, I'm not sure how Oklahoma right, speaks to what I'm interested in as a musical theater goer. I think that's a really good point. And similarly for queer folk, there's Avenue Q. Rent was the first musical that I saw on stage. But it's interesting because as those new theater pieces are coming out and reaching out to broader audiences, broader experiences, or at least audiences and experiences that weren't previously well represented in musical theater, We've also seen a lot of people refuse to go to those shows. The reason I got to see Rent was because my parents didn't want to go see it, and I got their season ticket <laughs> seats. And I recently saw the Book of Mormon, and I would bet a hundred people walked out of that show, you know, before mm. intermission. I love the fact that theater is changing in these ways and that it's getting riskier but also more relevant and more accessible to a broader population. Much like in film and television, I think if you look at cast and crew, then you'd say, oh, Broadway is incredibly multiracial and queer as fuck. <laughs> but when you then look at, as Charles put it, this is not speaking to my experience. I think there is this felt contradiction that now some of the people involved in the production from the acting and crew perspective are starting to say, we're not going to do this anymore unless you start speaking about our experience. Yeah, there's a super exciting push now in the industry, especially in New York, that we want the stories to come from these communities, as opposed to having someone from a majority writing about, well, this is what I right. think it's like to be a mm -hmm. queer person. And what's interesting for me in my personal journey in theater is there's currently directors and choreographers who are from an older era, and I acknowledge their necessity in the grand arc of musical theater, but we're at a point now where there are like director choreographers who are casting people in roles because it's funny to their generation. Like there's a queer character who is still a punchline in a musical that happened as recently as three years ago. Mm. So there's an interesting turnover that before we have the real turnover, people who have established themselves in our industry who are doing these old tropes and really keeping them alive. So the progress is a little bit slower than I personally would like. And I would imagine other people feeling similarly. Amen. Amen. This has been a rich conversation, but like every good musical and every good conversation, it has to come to an end. So, Rick, any thoughts to take us out? I just want to thank Blake Zolfo for joining us. I think the conversation was enriched tremendously by having actual knowledge at the bar. So thank you so much, Blake. I think this has been, for me, a learning experience in that now I feel confident in being able to say not only why I love musical theater, but why I'm legitimate in loving musical theater. <laughs> so Noelle just flipped on the lights last call. There was no big finale in that. The lights just came on and we got to go. But before we do, let me remind you all that you can go to patreon.com slash hotel bar sessions 
We have many levels of subscriptions available from the very affordable to ones that will allow you to ask us to do pretty much anything you want as long as it's legal and moral. (laughs) And as Lee constantly reminds us, we really do have loose morals. So please (laughs) do consider supporting us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash hotel bar sessions. All right, you degenerates. I've called a cab and it's on its way. I say we all three jump in the cab and leave the bill with Blake. What do you say? So long, farewell. (laughs) (laughs) All right, everyone. Have a good one. Thanks, guys. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.